when I was a teenager, I played in our youth group's praise band, our worship band, right? And we were we were pretty good. We practiced a lot. We had a lot of talent, and we were we were pretty good. And, and uh, God used us in a lot of ways. And as we you know kind of got into the scene and got more well known, we began to be invited to Disciple Now weekends to lead the worship and to uh, youth rallies and youth events to lead the worship with these groups. And it was a whole lot of fun. And at one particular youth rally that we went to, I remember that they they invited us with the speakers for that rally uh, to come uh, before the, the, the service, the rally started. And they said, hey, we want to pray for you. And so they got us together in a group. They, they put their hands on us and they began to pray for us. And I started hearing something I'd never heard before. It sounded like a lot of just gibberish and like just people just kind of making noises. And it was something that that was new to me, so it was distracting, and it just kind of stood out in my mind. And when they were done praying, I went to our youth pastor, and I asked him, I said, what was that that noise, that gibberish that some of the people were speaking? And he said, oh, they were praying in tongues. They were speaking in tongues. And I thought, oh, well, I'd heard about that before. I'd been taught about that in church before, and I'd read about it in my Bible before, but I'd never seen it happen. And it was something that was new for me. It was a new experience because the church tradition I grew up in did not practice that. It was new and different. And depending on your church tradition that you grew up in, if you grew up in one at all, this may be something that you may have heard talked about. Maybe it was completely ignored or maybe it was completely normal for you. That maybe every service you went to, people spoke in tongues. And there's a wide variety of teachings on this. There's a lot of different thoughts and a lot of different beliefs in regards to this. And so today, I felt like, man, as we're moving through this series on being suspicious of the supernatural, it was fitting that we would talk on tongues. Okay, but this is a big topic. Okay, this is not going to be something we're going to be able to cover in one day together, one session together. So we're going to do this in two parts as we talk on tongues and we say, what place does speaking in tongues have in the life of the believer in our current day and age? But in order to understand that man, we've got to put it in its right place and we've got to understand it through the lens of church history. And so this is going to be a two-part. The first time, the first part today, we're going to look at more of the history of it. And then next time, we're going to look at how we apply it to our lives today. Okay, so let's buckle in and let's let's get into this. But before we do, let's do a quick recap on our series of being suspicious of the supernatural. In our very beginning, in our first session together, we looked at how we need to start skeptically. And how having a healthy skepticism of all things in life, but especially spiritual things, keeps us from extremes, okay? And we learned that being suspicious of the supernatural helps us to examine the evidence. Being suspicious of the supernatural helps us to examine the evidence that we don't want to go to one extreme of cynicism and say, nope, supernatural things never happen. But we also don't want to go to the other extreme of blind faith and say everything that, that, that people talk about supernaturally actually happened. Because we do know there are false teachers and charlatans out there. We want to stay in the middle of a healthy skepticism so that we can examine the evidence properly. And then in our second session, we talked about misunderstanding miracles. And we looked at how miracles show the power of the kingdom and draw others to it. 
that we that miracles do happen and they show the power of God's kingdom and draw others to it, right? And then in our third session, we talked about how do we apprehend authority, right? How do we understand the proper place of the authority of the believer? That we don't want to go to the extreme of saying we have no authority, that it all rests on God and God never uses people. But we also don't want to go to the other extreme where we say that we have all the authority. Where because we are children of God that we can do everything on our own without God, right? We stayed in the middle and we said that we have access to the miraculous, but only at God's will. And we learned that just because I declare it doesn't mean God will deliver it. God is not our genie. We don't get to do everything at our will. We follow the model of Jesus to say, Lord, this is what we're asking for in your name. But we also we submit to your authority and say, not my will, but your will be done. And then as we wrap that up, man, this moves us to where we are today, to where we talk about talking on tongues. So here's the first thing we need to wrap our mind around is once again, there is a spectrum. And depending on the faith practice you were raised in, you may experience a, a, a very specific view on what does it mean to speak in tongues. As a guy that grew up in the Baptist faith, this was something we rarely talked on. We spoke about it a little bit when we talked when we read through Acts chapter 2, but a lot of the movements of the Holy Spirit were largely ignored. In the Baptist tradition, we love to talk about Heavenly Father, we love to talk about Jesus the Son, but we very rarely like to talk about the Holy Spirit. And the person of the Holy Spirit is often ignored, and that's bad, okay? Because it's part of who God is. It's one of the three parts of the Trinity. And we should give Holy Spirit the same amount of attention that we do Jesus and our Heavenly Father, that they are all three parts of the same person, right? And we talked in previous messages of how we as human beings were created in that image of God. That just as there's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, we have three parts. We have our mind representing God the Father, our body represented in Jesus as the physical representation of God, and the Holy Spirit the same way we have a spirit, right? And so as we look at this idea of what do we do with the idea of tongues, we have to be understanding that there are differences and different faith practices within the Christian church. And so because we have a, such a variety of denominations and Christian, cult, Christian church cultures and practices, we also have a wide misunderstanding of what it means to speak in tongues. Some people will say that the spiritual gift of tongues has ceased, that we don't need it anymore because we have technology and we can travel different places. I remember when... Um, I was in um, in Germany with the military, and we went to some places where we didn't speak hardly any German, and some of the people didn't speak any English. And so we were able to use our phone and have translation programs on our phone that would allow us really, really awesome experience to be able to talk English into my phone, and it would translate it into German, hand the phone to them. They would speak German and hand it back to me, and then I would hear it in English, and it was such an amazing thing. And some people would say, see, we don't need the gift of tongues anymore, so it has ceased. Then we have other people that will say, oh, speaking in tongues still happens, but it's only human languages, right? Only earthly languages. And then, of course, there are those that believe in spiritual tongues, a spiritual language that God gives, the language of heaven that allows people to speak and pray and sing in the heavenly language. And some people go to the extreme of saying that if you haven't spoken in a spiritual language, you haven't truly been saved. Like I said, there are many extremes and there's a lot of things in the middle. 
here's where we need to land today. And I'm just going to go ahead and put this right on the front line of what we're going to talk about, which is that if we're going to truly learn how to live in peace with other Christians, much less the rest of the world, we have to understand what the uncompromising parts of our faith are and what we can compromise on. What are the essentials of the Christian faith and what are the non-essentials? Okay, here's a great example. When I worked in hospitals, there are a lot of people who give their life to Jesus, especially as they see death approaching that makes us think about eternity. But because they're bedbound, they cannot be baptized by complete immersion in water. They can't be completely dunked, right? And so we do different things. We might sprinkle them. We might pour water over their head, right? Things like that. But there are some people I have met that would say that's not baptism unless they are completely immersed in water. They have not truly been baptized. That's an extreme, right? But to me, having recognized that there are people that can't do that, I recognize we have to compromise on that. I practice as a, as a minister, I baptize by immersion as often as possible because I feel like it's a beautiful symbol of what happens where we are buried with Jesus and resurrected into new life with him through the power of the Holy Spirit. We're buried in our past death to our sins and we're risen in newness of life. I think that's a wonderful outward sign of an inward change that happens. But I also understand that I have to compromise on that because it's not always possible. I know people that believe that if you're going to do communion, it must be wine. That juice and water have no place in, in, the, in the process. But I'll tell you, you know, as a guy who's worked with youth a lot of times, it can be very sketchy for a lot of parents to let a, you know, come to church and give these young kids who are under 21 alcohol, even if it's just a sip of it, right? That that's something that they struggle with. So we bring things like grape juice or even water sometimes. We compromise on that. And so this is true with the same thing of speaking in tongues. We have to be willing to compromise our faith traditions that we grew up in or what we've been taught in order to get along with other faiths. Because here's one of the things that, that I recognize um, probably about eight years ago now, maybe longer. We uh, transitioned out of a church community that we had been part of for almost all of my life. I was the associate, one of the associate pastors on staff, and because of life situations, we felt the need and, and the peace of God to step away from that position, but it was difficult to be part of that church when the expectations were still there of serving as the associate pastor and the responsibilities I used to have. So we prayed and, and, and sought out, and God led us to another church community that, that was from a, a, a charismatic background. And the ministers and the, the, the different pastors had, went, had gone to uh, charismatic Bible schools and had been brought up in charismatic Pentecostal traditions and that were different from what we had been raised in. And it made me very uncomfortable. But in the process of being part of this church community, combined with my time working in the military as a chaplain and, and, and overseeing chapels and overseeing different services and hospital chaplain work, I've learned that there's a lot of people who truly love God, who are completely sold out to Christ, but just have a different faith practice than me in a lot of different ways. And speaking in tongues is one of those many things. And so I've learned that, man, I have to be willing to compromise on that. That there are things that it may not be part of my faith practice, but that doesn't mean that it's not something that, that, that I would say, oh, that's evil. That, that, that followers of Jesus should never do that, right? I compromise on some things. And so how do we understand this idea of speaking in tongues? Where does it come from? Well, the first thing we need to do is we need to step in onto the pages of church history. 
pages of church history. Okay, and this is something that is totally important for every Christian. I believe part of the maturity of becoming a uh, an adult Christian in the faith, right? Moving from being a baby Christian where you're completely spoon-fed everything into adolescence where it's a mix to eventually, man, as much as I love listening to podcasts and hearing sermons and reading commentaries, I'm, I, I want to be spiritually mature enough that I can dig into God's Word on my own and that I can read the Bible properly and in context, okay? And so as we do that and we move from spiritual immaturity to spiritual maturity, understanding church history is part of that. Now, I recognize not everybody is a history nut, okay? I love church history. I study it for fun, okay? I really appreciate it because it brings the Bible to life for me. You know, I talk a lot about my time in the Middle East, And the reason I do that is because when I was in the Middle East and I visited many of the places that are recorded on the pages of Scripture, it helped me to wrap my mind around what life was like for those people. Help me to see it. And so even if you can't go visit in person, you can go online to the internet and read commentaries and look up pictures and and use internet web searches to see what these different things were like in order to understand the Bible better. So very briefly, today in this first session, we're going to look at the history of where um, the church went that led us to the practice of speaking in tongues, and we're going to look at what the Bible has to say about it. But before we do that, let me lay some groundwork by bringing two vocabulary words to you, okay? And these are, these are not common words we use a lot, but they help us to differentiate. The first is the word xenelia. Zanelia. Zanelia is the practice of a spiritual gifting that allows us to speak in an unknown earthly language. And a couple of sessions ago, when we talked about misunderstanding miracles, I used an example of this, and I'll use it again here. That let's imagine that we went on a mission trip to Africa where they spoke no English and they only spoke Swahili. Well, I speak only English and don't speak Swahili. So if I wanted to share the gospel with them, if I wanted to, to, to teach them about Jesus and what the Bible has to say, then I would need an interpreter. But imagine we didn't have one. And here we are in these areas where they don't speak English, they only speak Swahili, and God gives me the supernatural ability in the Spirit to speak in Swahili. You know I don't speak Swahili. They know I don't speak Swahili, but all of a sudden when I'm speaking, they hear my words in perfect Swahili. Now let's imagine another person is there with us from our team that does not speak Swahili. And all of a sudden, they can interpret all the things I said back in English properly. And they say, wow, how is that possible? That's the spiritual gift of Zanelia, of speaking in a supernaturally in an earthly language we don't understand, okay, in order to spread the word of God, the gospel. And this was a powerful need, especially in the early church. Can you imagine what it was like for the apostles, right, to to leave, starting in, you know, being obedient to Jesus. Jesus, you know, told them to start in Jerusalem and Judea and work their way to the ends of the earth. And they did. They worked their way to the ends of the earth as they knew it, right, that, that which was the Roman Empire. And as they traveled, in, in 30 years, the gospel got to completely told throughout all of the known world, all of the Roman Empire, by the apostles. And so as they did that, how were they able to do it? Well, they went into different countries and were able to share with them. And now most people did speak Koine Greek. And because of citizenship and roads, they were able to travel and do these amazing things. But a lot of places they would show up in, they would have a language barrier. 
And can you imagine how powerful that spiritual gift would be to show the power of God? And we said, that's what miracles do. Miracles show the power of God's kingdom and draw people to it. And we see that throughout the histories of the early church. And so as this moved throughout, man, Zanelia would have been a powerful gift and still would be today. I I can only imagine going to certain places. But I can also imagine the skepticism of today's day and age, right? Go back to my example when I'm in Germany. Imagine I didn't have that translation program. And all of a sudden, I have the supernatural ability to speak in German. When I, I know a handful of German words and phrases, but I couldn't speak it eloquently. Imagine I'm doing it masterfully and sharing the gospel and the teachings of the Bible to people. Would they believe that that was a supernatural movement? Most of them probably wouldn't. Most of them say, oh, you're lying. You really spoke German the whole time. Because of our knowledge of languages now allows us to oh, you just spent some time with a computer program or you had a tutor or you took classes, right, on how to speak German. They wouldn't believe it was a supernatural ability like they would have in the first century and the early history of the church. So we, we do see that there is some truth to these, some of the claims that, oh, we don't see speaking in tongues like we used to. That's Zanelia. Another word that we need to be familiar with is, is if Zanelia is the speaking of an unknown earthly language through the supernatural, Glossolalia is the next word. Glossolalia is the speaking of a spiritual language. And there are many people in this world, millions of people actually, that believe that when they become a believer in Jesus, they can receive a baptism of the Holy Spirit, a, a second work of salvation. That salvation, when we first come to Jesus, forgives us of our sins, and then we can receive a second work of the process called the baptism of the Holy Spirit or the filling of the Holy Spirit. And they get this from Acts chapter 2, and we're going to talk more about that in a minute. And they believe when you become filled with the Holy Spirit or baptized in the Holy Spirit, the evidence of that is speaking in tongues, is speaking in a spiritual tongue, a spiritual language. Now, some people go to the extreme of saying that, oh, you know, if you have not spoken in tongues and you are not really a Christian, you are not truly saved. I'm very thankful to see that in the church community we're plugged into now, even though they have such a charismatic background and there is a lot of speaking in spiritual tongues, that is never forced on somebody to say that to be a follower of Jesus, to be saved and, by, by, and, and to receive the Holy Spirit, that you must speak in spiritual language. They talk about it, and it's been taught on a lot, but that is not something that is, they, they teach as a requirement for salvation because otherwise that, that would be a non-negotiable for me and I, I wouldn't have to be part of that. But thankfully, man, they do a really good balanced approach to it. But there are those that will say, and I've heard people say that, that if you have never spoken in a spiritual language, then you're not truly a follower of Jesus. And this causes us problems as well. So as we talk about Zanelia, speaking in an earthly language supernaturally, and Glossolalia, speaking in a spiritual tongue. Where does all of this come from? In order to understand this, we have to start by looking at the Bible, and then we're going to look at some of the um, some of the examples in history. Okay, so the very beginning that we need to start with, of course, is with the Scripture. And if you've got your Bibles, we're going to look at a passage we've looked at before. And just to go ahead and lay out, if you want to follow along with me in the Bible, we're going to go to Mark 16, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 10 and 19, and 1 Corinthians chapters 12 and 14. I promise, guys, I know this is not normal. I do not like jumping around in the scripture a lot, okay? So if that's not something that's comfortable for you, write those down, and you can dig into them on your own for homework. Mark 16, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 19, and 1 Corinthians chapters 12 and 14. 
okay, 12, 13, and 14, excuse me. And so I'm going to be hitting those as we go through. If, that, if you don't want to play page turner in the Bible, you can just follow along with me and do your homework on your own later, okay? So let's start with Mark 16. Like I said, this is a familiar passage of Scripture. And in Mark chapter 16, we see after Jesus is resurrected from the dead, after he's risen from the dead, okay, he comes to the disciples and gives them the Great Commission. Starting in verse 15 of Mark chapter 16, it says, And then he, Jesus, told them, Go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone. Anyone who believes and is baptized will be saved, but anyone who refuses to believe will be condemned. And he says this in verse 17, These miraculous signs will accompany those who believe. They will cast out demons in my name, and they will speak in new languages. They will be able to handle snakes with safety, and if they drink anything poisonous, it won't hurt them. They will be able to place their hands on the sick, and they will be healed. So these are the things that Jesus says believers will be able to do. These are the signs that show that they are truly followers of Jesus, and one of those is speaking in new languages. And so we see this promise of God, and, and the old translation for language is tongue, okay, because you use your tongue to talk, okay, the old King James word uh, uh, in early English for speaking in new languages was speaking in tongues, okay, and so don't get confused by that. You actually don't get a new t literal tongue in your mouth. So, uh, as we look at this, you know, one of the things that um, we, we see in Acts chapter 2 is the first example of this. So Jesus promised it in Mark chapter 16, but then we see it actually happen in Acts chapter 2. So in Acts chapter 2, we see that Pentecost is happening. Now, Pentecost, we have kind of Christianized it, but Pentecost is a Jewish holiday. Penta, right, meaning five, okay, so Pentecost is 50 days after Passover, and so there are would have been thousands if not millions of people in Jerusalem and coming for this festival, right, and if you were super wealthy, people would just stay in Jerusalem from Passover all the way to Pentecost. Not everybody could do this, but a lot of people would, especially if they traveled from all over the world to get there, and so we see this as starting in um, verse uh, 4, okay? And it says, And everyone present, talking about the disciples that were hiding in the upper room, everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other language as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. Okay? So we know this is not something they could do on their own. The Holy Spirit is giving them that ability. And it says, At this time, or at that time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. Right? Remember, it's Pentecost. We've got people from all over the world. When they heard the loud noise, everyone came running, and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. And he goes on to explain that these are people from Galilee, but they're speaking in our own native language. So this shows us that this is an evidence of Xenalia. They are speaking in an earthly language. The context shows us that. Now, this is where, that's, that's why the, the Pentecostal denomination gets their name from this act of Pentecost, right? That this is where we see the first example of Jesus' promise coming true. Now, I'm going to get real with you and put the cookies on the bottom shelf. We only have one verse in all of Scripture that clearly talks about glossolalia. Every other example we see is either clearly Xenalia or it's not clear at all. 
And depending on how you were raised, some people will interpret the other examples as spiritual languages. Some people will take and pull the scripture to say, make it say that it's talking about a spiritual language. But there's only one verse that clearly, explicitly mentions a spiritual language. All the other examples are either clearly Xenalia, an earthly language, or it's not clear at all. And so this is what we see as the greatest example. And here's the other reality. With the example of the philosopher Celsus, no church father or early church writer specifically talks about a spiritual tongue. It does not start coming up until further in church history that we're going to talk about in a few minutes. And so we see in Acts chapter 2, they're speaking Xenalia, an earthly tongue. The only mention, like we said, of a spiritual tongue is in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And you know this passage, 1 Corinthians 13 is the love chapter, right? And he says this in verse 1, If I could speak in all the languages of the earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. That's one part of one verse that speaks of the tongues of angels, the language of angels and of men, right? The rest of the context is all about love and loving others and, and being kind and, and respectful and all these things, right? Talking about love is patient, love is kind, it's not boastful or rude or jealous, it doesn't demand its own way. All these things, right? This one part of one sentence mentions the language of angels. But people have built an entire theology or theological movement out of this. Now, I'm also going to be clear and say that I'm not saying that that is wrong. I'm only saying that in the scriptures, this is the only evidence of it clearly that explicitly states about a spiritual language. I have met incredibly godly Christ followers that believe they speak in a spiritual language. Okay, That's why this for me is, 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 a, is a something I'm willing to compromise on. But I want you to be able to make your own decisions, so I'm showing you things in the scripture. Okay, And so we've seen in Mark 16, Acts chapter 2, and in 1 Corinthians 13. Now 12 and 14 also speak about spiritual gifts, and we're not going to go too deep into those today. I, I wanted to give those to you for your own reading, where it talks about the speaking of tongues, and how it should be done, that it should be done in order, and there should always be an interpreter. Right, All of these rules that Paul puts down, but I wanted to show you that that is only the one passage that talks about a spiritual tongue. The rest of it talks about earthly tongues that people can understand. Because here's the thing, if somebody's speaking in a spiritual tongue, I've heard plenty of people speak in spiritual tongues. I have not been able to understand any of them, and I've never seen anyone interpret it. Now, that doesn't mean it doesn't happen. I'm sure people do that. But I'm also saying that if it's a language that's not codified, there's no way to say that that is miraculous because I can't prove it. Now, as we go through church history and the little time we have left, I don't have time to go over every single bit, but let's understand that after the church started, we began as the gospel spread, we began to see mutations and changes. Now, mutation <laughs> sounds negative, but it's actually a good thing. We start seeing changes in preferences that carry even to this day. If you visit different church communities, you're going to see them worship in different ways. Some people have auditoriums. Other people have, you know, traditional sanctuaries with, with stained glass windows. And, you know, some people have, um, you know, massive um, praise bands and lights and, 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 you know, all kinds of, you know, foggers and things like that. And some people use organs and some people use guitars and some people use only a cappella voices. All of these things are preferences. But what we have begun to see as we move through this, that one of the 
preferential things that we can negotiate on is this idea of spiritual tongues. Now, because we're running out of time for this session, I'm going to have to press pause here. But here's what I want to leave you with. That the scripture speaks of speaking in tongues. It speaks of the majority of the time of Zanelia speaking in earthly tongues for the purpose of spreading the gospel and showing the power of the kingdom. But we do know that there are many people who are godly people who speak in spiritual tongues that believe that. Okay? I'm not sure where you land on this today. But here's what I want to leave you with. And we're going to talk about this for a couple of weeks. That we must learn when to compromise to keep the church from its demise. And you guys know I love to make things rhyme and make it catchy. That we have to learn when to compromise to keep the church from its demise. And as we've laid this foundation for our first session, we're going to dig deeper into church history. We're going to get deeper, dig deeper into spiritual applications in our next session. But what I want you to understand is that there are a lot of varieties in church worship. And spiritual tongues is one of them. But as we look at that, even though the Bible only puts one verse to it, it's a mighty, mighty movement powerful thing that people are are using okay so if you encounter people like that even if it's not your preference or if you grew up in that preference and you meet people who don't believe in it guys we've got to learn to compromise we've got to learn to say okay whether you worship with a rock band or you worship with a choir or you worship a cappella, whether you sing out of hymn books or you sing from words on a screen whether you meet in auditoriums or small traditional church buildings wherever right we have to learn to begin to compromise because if we don't, guys, the church is dying. People are fleeing because we're spending so much time fighting amongst ourselves that we're not making disciples. So, man, today I want to encourage you as we begin the first part of this series on talking on tongues that we must learn when to compromise to keep the church from its demise. So I pray that you would begin to look at other believers and other denominations and other practices with an open mind and an open spirit. Be blessed this week.